you never have enough time. Everybody needs more time. It's a commodity that we all have in equal amounts, but we all don't have enough of. And so we know we have limited amount of time. That's a fact. Let's learn how to manage that time and rather how to manage ourselves around that time. Because working really, really hard without moving the needle is extremely unsatisfying. And so the old adage of how do you work smart and not just hard, for me, that's kind of the root of what time management is. I, you know, I didn't have a problem working hard. I, I'm happy to put in the hours. You see people grinding and working, but you know, really not getting any traction, that's, that's really, really frustrating. And so you, you don't want to mistake activity for achievement. And when you manage time, and when you start doing things like prioritizing and scheduling and having a to-do list and, and putting your planning in writing, you, you plan on purpose and on paper, you, you quickly start seeing all the areas that you're very active in, you're very busy with, but you're not really achieving anything. Hello and welcome to Inside Out. My name is Billy Samoa Salibi and I'm your host. Through interviews and case studies, I explore how transformational moments of awakening have helped propel the lives and careers of exceptionally successful people. These major breakthroughs teach valuable lessons that will help us in business and in life. Today's guest is Martin Wiley, a high-performing sales executive with endless wisdom. After an insanely successful run at Tesla and Solar City, Martin now leads inside sales for Sunrun, the largest residential solar installer in the US. What I love about Martin is his ability to break down concepts and ideas into bite-sized pieces. He makes them easy to understand and actionable. This episode is a perfect example. On the show, we discuss many topics, including servant leadership, stress and time management, how to create a winning team, and how to build the kind of culture that will yield the best results. A big believer in the power of consistency, discipline, and patience, Martin shares how when we have this combination, we're able to achieve incredible things. Martin also reveals how his areas of opportunities have ultimately become his greatest strengths, and how momentum, or big mo as he calls it, has been his recipe for success. This one is full of tactical nuggets that can be applied immediately, and I'm so excited to share it on this episode of Inside Out. All right, so Martin Wiley, I'm so excited to have you on the show. You and I had the opportunity to meet each other very early on into my start at Solar City. In fact, I think I'd only been with the company in maybe a week or two when we met in San Francisco for a leadership summit and I gathered the best of the best within the company uh, for a three-day workshop to discuss what it takes to be a successful leader at Solar City. And so I was tasked with the responsibility of building a playbook for our sales leadership. And part of that responsibility included finding out what it is that uh, what's that recipe to, to be successful? And so I was given the names of the best of the best. And, and we're talking about a company that at the time had about a 6,000 person sales organization. And the sales leadership, there was a lot of incredible leaders that we could have brought, but you were on the list. In fact, you were high, high, high up on the list of people to bring to this meeting. I still remember it to this day 
asking and going around the room and asking, yeah, what does it take to, to make yourself a success here? And you had so many insightful things to say during those three days. Uh, and that was just the beginning. And so you and I since then have, have really built a strong relationship. We've had many different opportunities to work together since then. And I'm so, so pleased to have you on the show. So welcome. Thanks, Billy. Great to be here. I, uh, I remember that meeting very, very well. I remember it like it was yesterday, although it feels more like it was 10 years ago. Yeah, it was, it was a great experience. One of the things I remember, by the way, I'll share with, uh, with the listeners, is one of the things that impressed me the most about meeting you was the things that happened before we actually met. You sent out some homework for everybody, some pre-work, and I was really impressed with the detailed list of questions you wanted us to think through and the way it was formatted and the way that it was put together. And so, uh, you know, that teed up the whole uh, seminar we had really, really well. I also remember, by the way, I'll, I'll add this in just for fun, <laughs> that it was Cinco de Mayo. And uh, at, at one portion of the meeting, you came back with a sombrero, a uh, mucho fake mustache, and, uh, and I think a, a margarita. So uh, it was a memorable uh, first impression, no question. The margar margarita machine was a nice touch. I'm glad that the uh, company decided to recognize that as a holiday and, and brought in the margarita machine. So absolutely was, uh, was a great first introduction and, and a, a great start to our relationship and, and friendship. You know, Martin, for those that don't know you, and I'm sure a lot of people will tune in that, that know your name. Before I got a chance to meet you, I, I heard your name so many times because you were at the top of the leaderboard month after month, week after week, your name was at the top. And so I know that SolarCity is, is only one of many careers that you've had and responsibilities that you've had. So for our listeners, can you share a little bit of your backstory and, and where you've worked, what you've done and some of the roles you've had? Yeah, Billy, I'm going to go way back to give a little bit of context. Uh, I was actually born and raised in South Africa, and I think that's a little bit relevant to my story. Uh, I think I'll talk a little bit about that uh, as we go through our conversation today. But born and raised in South Africa, moved to the States uh, after college and uh, worked in the hospitality industry initially. I was in food and beverage and uh, really enjoyed that. But notice the sales team were the guys and gals with the nicest cars, and they were having the most fun, and they were... Uh, seemingly working fewer hours. And I, I just thought to myself, man, I got to figure out what's going on in that sales center. And uh, got in there and met a few people and uh, finally talked my way into getting a, a entry-level sales position and uh, realized right out of the gate that sales was the right spot for me. And so um, my second or third position out of college was, uh, was a sales position. And uh, I never looked back. I worked in uh, hotel sales, which was B2B, kind of working with large businesses, trying to get them to book their business transient travel at hotels. I got promoted into a kind of a regional manager position where I oversaw a market and I had a number of hotels that uh, rolled up to me and uh, that made me move to uh, Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, I was in Phoenix, Arizona during the housing boom. Uh, the early 2000s, uh, houses were appreciating at a, at a crazy clip and uh, decided to dabble in that kind of on the side. I ended up getting my real estate license. I did some uh, rental properties. We did a couple flips and uh, I uh, started realizing I was really good at that type of business and tried to quit for Marriott. Called my boss and said, look, my uh, my side gig has kind of taken over too much time and uh, I'm at the, the point where I, I need to look at dedicating full-time energy to it. And he said, man, we, I think I'd been at Marriott five or six years at that stage. He said, we'd hate to lose you. 
if you love real estate so much, why don't you go talk to our ownership fractional division? And I went up and met with them and they were selling deeded fractional real estate, also known as timeshare, or as some of your listeners are probably thinking, crime share. <laughs> but I uh, took the opportunity to, to try that out before I, uh, I got out of the, uh, the, the industry, the, the hospitality industry, and just fell in love with it. I was really good at it. It was a high pressure, kind of uh, a top performing sales environment that I really thrived in. And uh, Started selling again, like most of my uh, industries, started selling on the front end and uh, worked my way into a manager position. And at the time, I was actually the youngest sales manager in Marriott's fractional org. I think we had 45 different properties around the world, and, and I happened to be the youngest sales manager, which was, which was quite a, an accomplishment, I felt, and uh, did that for another few years until the market crashed. Uh, long story short, Marriott uh, financed its own mortgages. They, they closed up their mortgage business and uh, kind of the writing was on the wall. I've actually had a number of opportunities in my career to be in a position where market trends kind of caused me to have to bob and weave and, and jump into different positions. And so I left for a, a brief period, did a little bit of uh, insurance and investing sales. Uh, did not enjoy that at all. We, we can maybe get into that later. And then finally, a couple of guys I worked with at Marriott had started with Solar City, and that's where the Solar City story started, and uh, got recruited in. Every time I talked to them, they were loving what they were doing. The company was growing, it was successful, and more importantly, it was in an industry that was meaningful. They were making an impact and were making a difference. And so that's where I started with Solar City. Uh, again, uh, came in as a frontline uh, salesperson, worked my way into a manager role, was a manager for two years. The uh, second year I was leading a team, we actually had the most installs than any other team in the nation at the time. I think that got me a little bit of recognition and I then got promoted into a sales director role. Again, another move. I moved up to Nevada, ran the sales org in Nevada for a year until the utility shut us down and uh, had to bob and weave. I, I got another promotion in, into a senior director position and moved to Southern California. Spent two years in Southern California. Uh, Tesla acquired Solar City, and we went through a number of changes that I participated in. And one of those changes was transitioning a, a direct sales team into a field sales team. And I did that in Florida, Texas. And then at the very end, I had Pennsylvania and uh, Illinois. And so a lot of changes, but a lot of growth at the same time. And just to put all of that intro into summary, I've been married for 18 years and we have uh, lived in 13 houses. So a lot of change uh, along the way. Amazing. Wow. What, a, what an incredible uh, career you've had. And I, I'm sure the experiences that you've had have all uh, been uh, insightful along the way. And I, I, I can only imagine just how much you've picked up from each of the roles that you've had. I guess to start off, one of the things that, that always fascinates me is what it takes to be a great leader. And if you had to pinpoint, what are some of the keys to your success in leadership? Yeah, I think there's a variety of things I can think of, Billy. Just based on that intro, boy, looking back, sometimes when you, when you cram in you know, 20 years into, a, into a, you know, a few minutes, one thing I'll have to share is flexibility. I think it's really important to, you know, to plan your work and to be structured, but at the same time, allow some room for flexibility. Hard work is definitely on that list. I don't think there's a leadership role that, uh, out there that doesn't require a lot of hard work. And then ultimately caring. I think genuine care for the people you serve with. I, I do practice servant leadership and 
happy to get into more details about what that means to me, but genuinely caring about the people you work with. And that, that brings with it, uh, you know, things like patience, empathy, listening, being committed to their growth. And it actually brings up something else that's, it's not spoken of a lot in business, but I think love, ha- having love for the, the company you represent, having love for the people that you work with. Uh, and if you, if you can get to that level where you genuinely uh, have that type of an emotion for the people you serve with, leadership comes a lot easier uh, if you can get to that level. First of all, thank you for, for sharing all of that. In particular, uh, I couldn't agree more with the love component. That's something that's been a, a, a recipe for my success is, is having that deep caring. And that's, that's where you started. And, and love is a, is a form of caring. It's probably the highest form of caring. And you, and you talked about servant leadership. One of, that's one of the tenets uh, of leadership that I recognize as being just a vital component to success. Um, but let's dive a bit deeper on that. You can provide a little bit more clarity on what servant leadership means to you. Yeah, tell us. Tell us what, what servant leadership actually means and, and how, how we can serve our people in a way that will provide the, the type of uh, results and, and create the type of that atmosphere that we want with our teams. Yeah, I think if you just think of the, the, the word servant, you know, servant is a funny word. Uh, a servant is not glamorous. It's not position that gives you a lot of popularity or uh, puts you on a pedestal. Being a servant is being subservient. And so being a servant leader means putting the needs and desires of your team ahead of yours. And so you're there to serve your team. And, and I think the kind of the old fashioned way of leadership, I love the term leadership because uh, a term that used to be a little bit more popular back in the day was management. You know, these were books on management. Now they're books on leadership. And sometimes the image of a manager is somebody who's trying to control their people and trying to get people to do what, what they want them to do. A servant leader, somebody who's actually a leader and who serves their people, tries to find out what's important to their people and then does everything in their power to make that a reality. They remove barriers for the people. They support their people. They come alongside their people. They serve them. They, they literally help lighten their load and help their job be easier by serving them. And so it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a word that we hear a lot. I, I, uh, I'm glad that it's becoming more and more mainstream. But being a servant leader isn't glamorous. It's, it's willing to get your hands dirty. It's willing to give other people the credit. And uh, one of the things that's almost the enemy of servant leadership is ego. Ego is the enemy. And so you have to check your ego at the door. It's not about you. And if you're a, a, a sincere, genuine leader, one of the definitions of leadership is if you turn around, people are following you. And so it's the ability to win the hearts and minds of people and then have those people follow you follow your leadership. And so those are just some kind of initial thoughts I can share there around servant leadership. Yeah. I mean, fellowships, not only is it important, it's there. I don't think there is anything more important when you're thinking about your ability to lead only exists if people are actually willing to follow you and more people are willing to follow others that would actually be willing to do the work themselves or be in the trenches with them. I think one of the things that, that I keep revisiting myself is thinking back to the failures that I've had and how those have actually ultimately led to the successes that I've had. Sometimes it takes that failure to spawn uh, a success. Uh, Can you share 
just a little bit about maybe some of the, the, the failures you've had because, you know, a career as long as yours and as many experiences as you've had, certainly you've had some failures and bumps in the road. Maybe, maybe, there's, maybe there's some that, that stand out more than others that would be worth sharing with the listeners. Absolutely, Billy. In fact, there's not just one or two that come to mind. There's many. Uh, it's, it's almost easier for me to think of my failures than it is to think of my successes, frankly. And I think that's part of the, the best tool to learning is, is learning what not to do and learning it the hard way. And so making mistakes comes with the territory. And, and so um, the word failure is, is a little tough, you know, because maybe they're just obstacles or mistakes. I, I think everybody has weaknesses. Everybody has areas that they aren't as talented in. And so when you spend time in those areas, you're going to tend to have more failures. And so I think one of the things I learned early on is getting very, very comfortable with things I was weak at. And some, some of them are really important things, Billy. One of them is actually naturally empathy. You know, I'm a, on the DISC profile, I'm a high D, high I. I tend to be a little bit of a bull in a china shop sometimes, particularly when I was uh, newer to leadership and some of my first positions, I uh, shot first and asked questions later. And so I realized that personality trait in me and realized that it was causing a lot of failures. I was, you know, having to pick up the pieces. I was a little brash. Uh, I, uh, I was impacting the ability for me to win the hearts of my people. And so that was a failure that not just a failure, one-time failure was a repeat failure. And so that was a weakness. And so I had to structure around that weakness and most importantly, surround myself with people that could backfill those weaknesses. And so when I build a team, particularly if I'm building a team of managers or other leaders, I want to surround myself with, surround myself with people that backfill those weaknesses. Um, another failure I had in the beginning, Billy, and this is just being vulnerable, is I, I had a little bit of a tendency to maybe gossip. And uh, I, I, that got me in a lot of trouble early on. I, uh, I wanted to share things that I recognized in people and not necessarily to be malicious, but to try to fix the problem. Most of the motivation was, was probably good, but you've got to be really careful with protecting other people's reputations. One of the things you mentioned in the beginning is reputation, and I think reputation is so key to leadership and followership. And so not only building your reputation, but, but being sensitive to protecting other people's reputations. And you want to you know, you want to recognize and encourage and reward people in public, but when you've got those difficult conversations or things that you, you need to uh, address, you want to be very sensitive to not um, talking about those to others. And so that was something I learned uh, early on. And then, um, you know, another, another uh, kind of a failure or challenge, Billy, is, is um, I wasn't very organized. You know, I, I'm competitive. I, I like to charge at things. I, I like to tackle challenges and uh, sometimes that leaves a little bit of a wake in your way. And uh, being organized and structured was not something that came to me naturally in the beginning. And I had to learn how to better manage my time and my resources and how to be more organized in general. Thanks for sharing. And, and actually, it's, it's so interesting to listen to your observations of yourself because what that really shows me is your self-awareness, which is often one of the greatest ways to elevate your ability to lead others is the better you know yourself, the more you, to your point, the more you can uh, bring people um, around you to sort of round out the areas that, that you're 
uh, not as strong. And, but, but it only happens if you actually know yourself very well. So can you talk a little bit about the, the, the notion of uh, self-awareness and, and how that has been something that you've leaned on to you know, put yourself in a position to, to get the kind of results that you've gotten in, in so many different roles throughout your career? Yeah, I'll address some real tactical ways to learn about your strengths and weaknesses. But before I do that, I think it's main, the main issue is it's a question of maturing. And, uh, you know, I, I'm speaking to you, I'm, I'm officially in my midlife. I'm not going to uh, tease you at how old you are, Billy, or how old I am. But I've had enough life behind me that um, I've, I've had at least some maturing. Certainly there's room for more, but evolving and maturing, you, you, you get to look back over things and not just single examples or, or single decisions, but, but many of them in a row to start looking at, at patterns. And so I think part of um, self-awareness, it, it's, a, it's a, a case of maturing. And so things like ambition and hunger and being courageous and being influential. And, you know, there's a lot of character traits that are kind of held to high esteem, but there's another side to that. You know, you can be courageous while still being humble. You know, you can be a, a maverick, but you can still have integrity. You can have ambition and drive, but you can do that with a, a sense of sensitivity and a sense of discipline. And so a lot of it is just maturing, but uh, taking time out to really look at how your decisions are impacting others. Seeking feedback is a really key way to doing that. And then from a tactical perspective, the Gallup organization has a program called Strengths Finders. And without doing you know, too much of a, a commercial on Strength Finders, it's just a great program because it takes 34 different strengths that everybody has and it's stacked ranks them. So what's your number one strength and what's your number 34 strength? And then it, it goes into all those different strengths and helps you understand them deeper. And so Strength Finder was, it was a great tool. Marriott utilized it. And because I was a manager, they put me through Strength Finder training. And I eventually became a certified strengths coach, Strength Finder coach, and uh, love that uh, process. And so not only having that self-awareness and doing it myself, but now over a number of years, having had a number of other leaders and other managers that I've had the opportunity to take through that process, you just start having a real awareness for, hey, not everybody's perfect. And it's important to find your strengths because frankly, you want to soar with your strengths. You want to work in areas that your strengths benefit you, but you need to be aware of your weaknesses you're not going to fix them necessarily. Some of these are things that you just have to live with. But how do you how do you smoothen the rough edges of those weaknesses? And as an example, I already brought up is is surround yourselves with people that can backfill those weaknesses. And so I think that maturing process is a journey. Uh, leadership development, growing as a leader, is is also a journey. This is not something you can you can do overnight. But it's it's uh, having a a hunger and a and a curiosity for that knowledge. And continuing to learn. And, and Billy, I've always enjoyed our conversations. I, I love the fact that you're doing these podcasts because I feel like we've been doing these for years. We, we have conversations where we just check in with one another and you ask these very thoughtful, open-ended questions and we get into these conversations. And so talking to people about these things and asking others and learning from them is a wonderful way to learn more and, and a wonderful way to grow yourself as well. 
Thanks. Well, I, I, I feel this, the same way about listening and talking to you. I, I don't walk away from a conversation that we've had without feeling more empowered, more equipped, um, just better. Uh, and whether it's you listening to me and, and, and kind of allowing me to vent, or frankly, if the other way around, or if it's something uh, super deep and, and, and meaningful and, and kind of uncovering or, or discussing ways in which we can improve ourselves and ways in which uh, we can, can improve the productivity of our teams. We always seem to be aligned and, and yet we're always, I think, learning from each other. As I think about you know, everything that you're talking about, one of the things that has always impressed me about you and really one of the things that you and I have talked at length about is the idea about habits, is the idea about having the kind of habits that will help you be a more effective person and a more effective leader. And I know that's something that's important to you and you've already been a bit vulnerable and shared that you maybe haven't historically been the most organized person, which to me is so interesting because I've literally asked you to teach people how to be more organized and how to manage themselves and manage their time in a much more effective way. And, and what you've shared with me is that was, that was born out of necessity. It wasn't something that you just had uh, innately. You, you, you actually worked to develop that. So can you share a little bit more about your habits and your rituals, whether it be in life or as a leader? Because uh, I'm fascinated by this and it's something that you know I've always been super impressed by you. So so I'd love to hear you share a little bit about which habits and rituals have been most impactful. Yeah, Billy, I, I love talking about habits and I almost feel like habits are the ultimate life hack. It's almost like cheating because it's so easy. And once you learn how to build a habit and you start finding things that you want to turn into habits, habits take care of themselves. Uh, habits are hard to form. They take a lot of effort and it takes a lot of time. But once they're formed, it's one of those set it and forget it type of things. And so there are a lot of areas that require you to make habits. I'll use a very simple example, the habit of brushing your teeth before you go to bed. That's something that you have to learn. And so when you have young kids, you get in this you know, nightly routine of telling them, did you, wash, did you brush your teeth? Did you brush your teeth? Did you brush your teeth? And eventually it just starts clicking. And uh, you know, as the father of teenagers, I'm not asking them if they brush their teeth anymore because I'm assuming that habit has formed. And so habits are things that take effort and they take time. But the beauty of habits is once they're formed, they're on autopilot. And so to answer your question on successful habits or rituals that I have in my life, you mentioned the one is time management. I think time management in many ways is a habit. There are certain things you can do in a certain frequency and with a certain consistency, that'll help you better manage time. Stress management is another category that I've, I've built habits into because uh, I believe stress is a real physical, tangible problem. The way, the way it manifests itself in my life is if I don't manage stress, eventually the stress will, will kind of come out of me and uh, I'll get migraines, I get headaches, I get you know a lot of tension in the neck and shoulders. And so I know that I need to manage stress long before it starts manifesting itself you know, as pain. And so stress management, that's something that you need to build into your life. There needs to be a routine. There needs to be things you do to manage stress and, and it needs to be you know, scheduled and something that becomes a habit. Uh, Work-life balance. I, I think that's a, boy, that's a, a really hot topic these days. And I think there are different generations 
that struggle in different ways with work-life balance. And I hear with a lot of millennials, the desire for work-life balance, but it's, it's actually a work-life imbalance because they're actually trying to you know, have too much play and too much fun and not enough work. And so the work-life balance, it's, it's not that it's going to be 50-50. You know, I, I love Tim Ferriss and I, I, I listen to his, his stuff, but the four-hour work week, you know, that can be misleading. <laughs> it's not that you, you, you're only going to work four hours a week. And so I think work-life balance and, and focusing on your family, if you have a spouse, if you have kids, uh, these are things that become rituals uh, and habits. Uh, and then ultimately, one of the habits that you have to build in to your life is, in my opinion, is to be a lifelong learner. So reading and growing. I love reading and I have many books that I've learned a lot of great things from. But reading is oftentimes something that doesn't happen unless you turn it into a habit. And so carving out time in your schedule to read between stress management, time management, work-life balance, and you know, self-development learning. Uh, those are you know, habits and rituals that I've built into my schedule that I think have really helped me uh, succeed over the years. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot to dissect there. And one of the things that you, know, you did a, a whole module on for our leadership training was time management. So why don't we start there and, and kind of maybe you could share a little bit more on the specifics of your approach to time management. I know you, we did about an hour and a half or two hour module for our students, but if you could give a, a, a brief overview of some of the best practices that you've found to be helpful when, when you think about how to, how to manage your, yourself and manage your time. And you know, that module, uh, by the way, it wasn't just me who developed it. There were a number of people that, that we collaborated on it, but I do think we came up with some really good content. And the, the piece of that module that I was most um, excited about is when you deal with time management, you're really dealing with two different categories. The first category is managing yourself. And uh, the hot word there, the key word is discipline. And so I love talking about discipline. Discipline is a, is a subject that fascinates me because it's it's such an elusive thing as, as humans, by default, we tend to want to be lazy. You know, it takes effort to be disciplined. This is not something that ever goes away. You're always having to, having to work against wanting to be naturally, wanting to be lazy. Atrophy, you know, it's a, it's a natural occurrence. And so the, per, the first piece of time management is really discipline, which is, which is more around self-management. And then the second part of time management are all the tools, you know, software, uh, how to prioritize, just different tips and tricks on managing time. And so I, I am a, a big fan of time management because I know how important it is and also know when left unattended, how catastrophic it can be to somebody achieving you know, true success or, or going to the next level. Uh, time management, in, in, particularly Billy, in the environment that we were, we were training in for sales managers is there's never enough time in the day. You always have more work than you have hours in the day. And so I noticed that the excuse of I don't have enough time became such a common excuse that we wanted to give people a, a, a tool to better manage their time because you never have enough time. Everybody needs more time. It's a commodity that we all have in equal amounts, but we all don't have enough of. And so we know we have limited amount of time. That's a fact. Let's learn how to manage that time and rather how to manage ourselves around that time because working really, really hard without moving the needle is extremely unsatisfying. And so the old adage of how do you work smart and not just hard 
for me, that's kind of the root of what time management is. I, you know, I, I didn't have a problem working hard. I, I'm happy to put in the hours. You see people grinding and working, but you know, really not getting any traction. That's that's really really frustrating. And so you you don't want to mistake activity for achievement. And when you manage time, and when you start doing things like prioritizing and scheduling and having a to-do list and, and putting your planning in writing, you, you plan on purpose and on paper, you, you quickly start seeing all the areas that you're very active in, you're very busy with, but you're not really achieving anything. And so the first thing is discipline. And, and discipline is elusive, and discipline is available for everybody. Nobody's naturally perfectly disciplined. Everybody has a weakness, whether that's sleeping in or going to the gym or, you know, following up on emails. Everybody has an area in their life where they just lack discipline. And so you need to work on that. And so the first thing you need to do is you need to write down all the activities that you need to work on. And then you kind of work your plan. And, and the best way to work a plan is to start with the end in mind. You know, what does winning look like? What do you hope to accomplish? And then, and then reverse engineer that. What are the activities that are going to lead to those types of results you're seeking. And one of the best tools that we trained on and, and that I've ever used on prioritizing is Stephen Covey's Four Quadrants. And it's just a great filter to run all your activities through to determine which quadrant are these activities falling into, and then that'll help you determine how to prioritize them. And so you need to learn, the, learn how to prioritize, and then once you've prioritized all your activities, then you just have to manage the activities. And particularly in sales, it's, it's a, you know, a common saying is if you manage the activities, the results will follow, but, but you actually have to manage them. It takes work. And so scheduling, scheduling large time blocks for the most important activities is really important. And schedule them as far as you need to. If there's things you need to do weekly or daily or monthly or every quarter, go ahead and schedule those ahead of time and stay committed to them. You know, there's a, there's a the great story of, of trying to cram everything into the jar. You have to start with the large rocks first, the big rocks. And so those time blocks scheduled on your to-do list is, is a very quick and easy time management tool to help people. And then depending on what software you use, uh, Billy, you were huge on using Outlook rules. You know, create rules. You use the software to your advantage. Uh, schedule recurring meetings so that you don't have to continually worry about the meetings. You know that they're recurring, so go ahead and schedule them ahead of time. Uh, color coding, utilizing templates uh, that are available. There's a lot of just very kind of tangible, tactical time management tips that are very helpful. And then have a, a, a great note-taking platform. You know, I, I love carrying around the old Moleskine uh, journal, but you gotta have something a little bit more high-tech to that. So uh, OneNote's a great suggestion. Some folks are doing it through Google Notes or Outlook, uh, but being able to organize your thoughts and, and your notes in one place is really, really important. And planning, Billy, just, just uh, to jump into it real quick, the, you know, there are studies that show that people that spend 15 minutes a day planning are as much as 20% more productive. And so before you open up your inbox, before you get out into the field or the office or wherever you work, just pull out a pen and paper and do a little bit of planning. Do a little bit of uh, quiet you know, contemplation, thinking about your day. What do you hope to accomplish? And planning on paper and actually having goals uh, is, a, is a very, very powerful way uh, to work on time management. 
So let's let's dive in on that notion right there. I, I think it's so important and it often gets, you hear it and it makes sense, but yet people just want to get straight into it. They don't, they don't want to wait. They don't want to take the 15 minutes to plan. I can't emphasize enough how valuable that advice is. And yet people, again, they, they still choose not to take it. And so if we're going to double down on that concept and kind of dive in, let's, let's talk about that. What does that look like for you? Because I know some people could do that the night before. Some, some people could do it and some people do it the, the morning of their day. Uh, and then, of course, some people, a lot of people don't do it at all. What was your strategy and, and, and what was most successful for you? Yeah, I think the easiest thing on planning, Billy, uh, particularly if it, if there's measurable outcomes. So one of the cool things about sales, one of the reasons I love sales is it's very measurable. You know, every number of calls you make, your um, your efficiency, your close rate, your pull through, your cancellation rate, there's a lot of things that are measurable. And so things that are measurable are oftentimes easier to set goals for. Uh, most salespeople have a forecast or a goal and so breaking that goal into bite-sized chunks and, and having pacing and having numbers. And so anything that's metric driven is very easy to set goals for and a plan for. The things that are less metric driven, but equally important, those are a little bit more difficult. And so what you need to determine is, again, what does winning look like? If I, if I got an A plus on this task or this project, what, what, would, what would I need to accomplish in order to have an A plus? And so that list are the measurable outcomes that you need to accomplish. And then you reverse engineer. And so um, that's the outcome. What activities are going to lead to that outcome? And and you write out all the activities. Those are very quick, very easy. Um, You know, you're normally doing a ton of those a day. And then you figure out what's the frequency of when I need to do these. And if there are things that, like in sales, follow-up, if you know that follow-up is a part of the formula for success, then you need to determine, boy, how much follow-up do I need? As an example, if it's 30 minutes a day, then you go ahead and you schedule that. And so you, you start building what would your ideal calendar look like if you had no interruptions, if you had no additional projects you know, um, added to your workload, what would, what would a perfect schedule look like? And you actually plan it out. You, you plan out your week uh, you know, on a calendar or on paper and you fill it up. And it, it'll amaze you how quickly your schedule gets filled and there's a ton of stuff that you probably should still be doing that aren't on the schedule yet. And so a schedule is kind of a living, breathing document. You're always massaging it and you're always working with it and tweaking with it. It's never perfect. And you're figuring out what do I need to take off and what do I need to put on? And Billy, we've, we've joked about this simple question, but every time you're making a decision to do something or you're making a decision to respond to a request to do something, you're saying yes to that request and you're automatically saying no to whatever else you could be doing. And so when you get an email or a phone call or somebody asks you to do something, every time you agree to doing that, what are you actually saying no to? And so just remembering, man, when I say yes to something, I'm automatically saying no to something else because I can only focus on one thing at a time. And so that is an exercise in prioritizing. And the more you you are conscious about prioritizing, the more that you're intentional about figuring out what's the most important thing I should do first, what should I do first, that'll help you goal set and that'll help you schedule. And uh, it takes time and, uh, and, and it takes a lot of work and it gets easier the longer you do it. The hardest part of time management is starting. You know, it's just like uh, weight loss. 
uh, you know, the, it's the hardest is to kind of take those first steps. And so realize it's going to be a little tough. Realize it's going to be a little sloppy. It's not going to be perfect right out of the gate. But start, uh, lean on somebody that, that you can learn from. There's, there's a ton of great books that I learned from in the beginning. And then it's a process that you continue to get better at uh, over time. Uh, another quick, quick thing to add in, Billy, on, on, um, on uh, goal setting and, and managing your time, I'm a huge fan of the 80-20 rule. And uh, simply put, the 80-20 rule states that um, 80% of the results come from 20% of the efforts. And so when you can start learning what activities you're doing that generate the most results, what are you most eff effective and efficient at, you start focusing on those activities. And all of a sudden, that, that other 80% of the wasteful you know, time and effort that's not really leading to any of the results, you start learning to put those off to the wayside, either not doing them at all, postponing them, or delegating them to somebody else. And, uh, and I love the 80-20 rule. It, it's, it's, a, it's another kind of a mindset on prioritizing, but try to find out where is that the, the area that you need to focus the majority of your time that's going to lead to the best results. Yeah, that's powerful advice. And, and you said it, right? The first thing you want to do is actually completely remove any activities that aren't necessary. And then with the remaining activities, you could either postpone them or delegate them. And, and often delegating them is the answer, especially if it's something that you yourself don't need to do because your time's valuable. You only have so much of it to utilize. And therefore, spending time on the tasks that you and only you can do is really the, the right kind of recipe. Uh, I, I absolutely love the concept of when you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to something else. And yes, we've had many, many jokes about that over the years because truthfully, I, I never thought of it in that way. I was always a yes, yes, yes. And without thinking of the consequences of, of overcommitting or doing too many things in the spirit of trying to do everything, you're actually not doing anything uh, or you're, you're doing nothing. And so uh, it's just a powerful reminder that it's easy to get in the habit of overcommitting yourself. And in doing so, what that does is compromise your, your ability to perform at an optimal level. Speaking of performing at an optimal level, I'd love to transition into more of the, the secret recipe that you have for building the types of teams that have had phenomenal success. And a, a side note story, as you know, Martin, when, when I came to Solar City, my one of my roles, uh, along with building out a leadership playbook for the company, was uh, to work on a platform to help us communicate to the field all of the uh, most important concepts, most important strategies, most important recognition pieces of, of, of the week to our sales force. And so we, we built what was known as Solar City Television or SCTV for short. And we had a phenomenal host, Hayes Barnard, share with the teams all of those things. And he often had special guests and every week he would do a recognition piece. And I remember it like it yesterday, like it was yesterday that your name was constantly being announced as the leader of the highest performing team in the company. And at the time that was your Las Vegas sales organization. And I know that that was a, a team that you 
built from scratch with um, with the leadership team that that you built, and uh, clearly that was a uh, a huge win for the company, and and it really put you you and your name on the map at Solar City. Uh, I again just remember hearing your name ring out over and over again. Knowing you much better now today than I did then, I know why that happened. And it really does come down to building the right team, building the right culture, focusing on the right strategies. So can you share a little bit about what the keys to building a successful team are and, and what they've been to you? Absolutely, Billy. And, and uh, man, I, walking down memory lane on, on some of the Solar City TV shows and the recognition, it, it was such a great run and it was such a fun season. And, uh, you know, uh, talking about time management and, and delegating, I, I, I think, uh, you know, I'm talking right now to one of the best collaborators I've ever worked with. The way you, you put together, um, and not necessarily teams in terms of hierarchy, you know, one of the things that, that you've always done a phenomenal job with, Billy, is you find people that you can recruit to help you with your causes, regardless of whose org chart they're in. Um, you, you were brilliant at that and, and, uh, and you, were, you were just amazing at multiplying your efforts by surrounding yourselves with great people. And so that's kind of at the core of, of what you're talking about here. When you build a team, one of the things that I loved about, look, everybody likes to be recognized and we, you see your name in bright lights, it feels good. But what I always told my team is I wasn't making any sales at the time. I, I didn't have any a personal book of business that I was managing. And so I didn't make a single sale. Every one of those sales that, that, were, that were added together on that scoreboard were their sales. And so constantly making sure that you give the credit where credit's due. Because at that time, I was a sales director and I had a team of sales managers who rolled up to me. And the sales managers had a team of sales reps beneath them. And so it was, you know, two or three layers removed. And so just really making sure that you know where your bread is buttered, you know, who is really driving the results for your organization and to make sure that you're giving, you know, fair credit where credit's due. But I love team building. Team building, it's, it's, um, it's kind of like a puzzle for me that I really enjoy jumping into and growing. Um, in that example that we're using, that Vegas sales org, um, my most important hiring decision uh, was the right sales managers. And, uh, and Billy, as you know, we spent a lot of time together doing management training and managing the frontline sales leadership because we felt that that was probably the lever that uh, helped us drive the business the most because those are the folks that are leading the, the sales team. And if you can you know, get the right players in the right positions at that level, man, it took care of, of so many other things. And so my secret sauce for that example was just having a phenomenal team of sales managers and pouring into them and helping them grow and be better and, and build the right team. But, but team building for me, but it starts at hiring right. And so understanding who you're looking for, not just in terms of you know, resume or background, but, but really um, scripting out what, what your, your perfect candidate looks like. And I have a list of character qualities that I look for when I'm interviewing. And I also have a list of character qualities I try my very best to avoid. And, and maybe that's not very politically correct or HR approved, but there's certainly personality types that come into a sales org that can ruin things really quickly. And so for me, it was really big that we brought the right people in from the get-go. And if you hire right, and if you bring in the right kind of quality, and it's not always people that are perfect to begin with, but people that have the potential 
to be top performers. And so hiring right on the front end, having a uh, hiring profile that you stick to and you make sure that you're bringing people in that fits the profile. Even though we were uh, going through a growth spurt, we were trying to grow really rapidly. Don't cut corners and, and don't rush to making uh, hiring decisions because if you bring the wrong people in, um, doesn't matter how much training and coaching you have in place, they're, they're still the wrong people. Then uh, having people that are a variety of different personality profiles. Again, I'm, I'm big on Strength Finder. I'm, I'm big on DISC. You cannot have um, you know, 15 of the same type people on a team. You need to have people that complement one another. And so I, I, uh, one of the things I started doing early in my career is I just had a simple spreadsheet where I had all the different managers and all the different team players beneath them. And we would color code them. We would color code them by performance. We would also color code them by you know, their personality profile or their potential. And we would make sure that we were building well-rounded teams. I think that's really, really important. And these are basic things, Billy, like people with energy and with passion and with enthusiasm. You know, those are things that are very powerful in, in sales. And so it's not, uh, you know, we're not grading people at this, you know, un, unrealistic um, you know, standard, but people that are energetic and passion and enthusiasm. Uh, another big thing on team building for me, Billy, I love training. That's where you and I kind of started our relationship because you were in the, in the training arm, but I, I love coaching more than I love training. And so building a, uh, a culture of coaching uh, uh, is really, really important to me. And so having managers that are coaches, there is somebody has the heart of a teacher a coach is a, is, a, is a unique person. And so when you can coach people and you can coach them on a personal level, then you recruit their hearts into the fight. And when you've got their hearts into the fight, things really, really start clicking a whole lot better. And so team building uh, is really a matter of recruiting and uh, a, a, ma a matter of uh, personality profiling. Now, once you've hired them in and, and you've got the right players and you've equipped them, now the conversation kind of starts evolving into culture. And, and, and uh, for me, culture is, is, uh, is a separate topic, but equally really, really important culture, particular, uh, topic, particularly in sales. Uh, ha having a healthy sales culture uh, can make or break the performance of a sales team. Couldn't agree more. In fact, that was the, you're, you're, you're basically bringing up the, the very next question that I, I wanted to ask, which is, about culture, specifically about how to build the right kind of culture, because as e I think equally as important as um, building the right culture is making sure you don't build the wrong type of culture. Um, and, and then along with that, we've heard the old adage, culture eats strategy for breakfast, which it, there's, there's a lot of truth in there. Uh, I think the, other, the flip side of that is that strategy is also very important. So how do you balance building the right culture while also designing the types of strategies that will help you win? Great, great question, Billy. And, and I love this idea of balance. And I think there's many topics, um, culture versus strategy is one of them, but there's a, a list of things in leadership that you need to balance because uh, you, you, know, you can't have it unfairly weighted all the way to culture and not have strategy at all. And if it's all strategy without culture, that's dangerous too. But for me, first and foremost, and I think this is more, um, more prevalent in sales, but I think in any business really, is um, it's a people business. And so, yes, you have a product. Yes, you have a sales process. Yes, there's rules and, and other things, but ultimately it's a people business. And so when you're building a culture, remember that, that it's really built around your people. 
And so for any new manager or anybody that's bringing on a team, it's really, really important to get to know your people on, at a personal level. You've got to understand what makes them tick. You've got to understand what their motivations are. You've got to understand what drives them. And so on a cultural perspective, it, there's no one size fits all. You've got to be prepared to uh, manage culture according to the team that you have because it is a people business. It's so important um, to be able to persuade your people to follow the vision that you're casting for them. And so there's quite a lot in that statement. The first one is you've, you've got to cast a clear vision. And, and, and that simply means the team needs to know where we're headed. What does the future look like? We're going down this road. What does it look, vision, you know, what does it look like? And so you've got to, you've got to paint that clearly for them. And then you've got to persuade them and motivate them and get them to follow you towards that vision. And, and uh, the greatest analogy for me in this regard is a rope. If you think of a, you know, a, a decently thick rope, if you try to push a rope, uh, it just gets tangled up and it gets stuck upon itself. But if you grab the end of the rope and you pull it, it'll, it'll just go along and follow you. And so you've got to pull your team through this, not push them. And so that's all part of uh, building the right type of culture. You've got to be passionate about what you do. Uh, people have to do work that matters. Uh, for this you know, example that we had at SolarCity and Tesla where we were in clean energy, it's such a powerful movement and it's work that matters. And so people have to be passionate about um, the team that they're playing for. And, and when, when you win, what does winning really look like? And so when people are um, aligned around a clear vision and they're passionate about the mission uh, of that organization, um, it's pretty easy to get the team bought into and get the culture built around that. Having genuine care for your people, we talked about that earlier. I sincerely mean that. You have to actually care about the people you work with. And even though we're keeping score, even though there's a quota, even though we're competitive, you have to care, genuine care about the people that you work with. And a lot of that genuine care for me, Billy, starts with being grateful for them. You know, when people come and work for you, they can work for anybody. And, uh, and when you find a new recruit and you go through the hiring process and you make them a job offer, that is a very powerful moment in someone's life because people dedicate a lot of their time and energy to their careers. And so when you bring somebody on, you have to be truly grateful that they have chosen to come and join you in your fight. And so being grateful for people, understanding the sacrifices they're making to work with you. And then ultimately, even though recognition and, and reward and, and these kind of these fuzzy parts of culture are important, nothing drives people better than actual results. And so you have to be diligent on implementing and executing. And so uh, you have the vision, you have, the, uh, you, know, you, you have them fired up around the mission of the company. Once you equip people to do the job, then it's all about implementation and execution. And I think in sales, again, particularly, accountability is such an important variable. If you hold people accountable, you'll be surprised at what they do. And so when, when done in the right way, accountability and execution become positive things, not uh, punitive or negative things. Couldn't agree more. And I, I think that's a great distinction that you're making. You know, accountability doesn't have to be a bad thing. In fact, it can be a very good thing. Can you share and maybe go a bit deeper when, when we think about once we have the culture piece in place, which kind of all roads lead back to culture being in the right place to start. But once it is in the right place, and, and as you said, you know, you still results do matter. What, what are the ways that you've implemented the types of strategies 
necessary to achieve those kind of results. And you've put up such insanely great numbers in so many different roles. I'd love to get really specific on maybe, maybe identifying some of the strategies that you've put in place that have, that have had the, the biggest impact with, with the teams that you've uh, been a part of. There's a, a force in sales that is so powerful and that force is momentum. And, uh, you know, uh, sometimes people will call him Big Mo because it's kind of like this little character that's part of your team. And when you build momentum, teams look like they're achieving greatness and they're not even working as hard as the others that are struggling. And so whenever I've come about building a sales organization, what I'm really trying to do is build momentum. And momentum is awesome and amazing once it's up and running but it's very unsexy and unglamorous to get it started. Momentum is built on a number of different habits that are built over time with consistency. And, uh, and part of that actually comes from a book by uh, Darren Hardy, The Compound Effect. And the, the formula is um, small, smart choices plus consistency plus time equals a radical breakthrough. And so momentum is that radical breakthrough. Man, the, the, the team is just clicking. The sales volume is high. The culture is high. Everybody's positive. You don't have a lot of turnover. Things are just, things are just clicking, man. And, and that's momentum. But when you, when you work the, the formula backwards, the first piece of that is small, smart choices. And so there, there are some very basic things to do, things like showing up on time, you know, things like sticking to your commitments, things like taking care of your customers, doing the small, smart choices, the basic things. Be brilliant in the basics. That's the first piece. And and the way you do that, by the way, is through training and and mirroring and role-playing and making sure that they're really, really good with the basics, the fundamentals. I'm talking about fundamentals. Once you got the fundamentals down, now it comes to doing it consistently. So you don't do it, you don't do the small, smart choices once in a while. You do them every time, every day. And so now we get consistency. And then the next piece of the equation is time. And everybody wants to be at the top of the list right away. Things take time. And, and I had to learn that, Billy, really the hard way early on in my career because I'm not a very patient person naturally. And so just going the distance, put in the time. Be patient. You know you're doing the right things. You know you're doing them consistently. So just keep on doing them. And then all of a sudden you look up and, and big mo, momentum is showing up and things are just clicking. Thank you for listening to this episode of Insight Out. I hope you enjoyed the show and I really hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in your career, in your business, or in your life. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. This is extremely helpful and I can't tell you how much I would appreciate it. Also, if you haven't checked out our website yet, you can find us on the interweb at insightoutshow.com. On the site, you'll find tons of great content, including all of our podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, and the all-important link to support this show through Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's an amazing platform that helps creators gain the support they need to continue creating. And remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.